we're winding down a series. We'll close it out next Sunday, December 13th, but we're winding down a series called The Resilient Life. And we're simply defining resilience. We're kind of taking a pseudo dictionary definition and saying resilience is the capacity to rebound. Uh, it's the ability to bounce back. Uh, week one, I brought a stick up here and talked about being at the breaking point. And for some of us, it's that way. And, and don't you know that holidays can heighten that? And week two or three, I think it was, I brought up a, a tennis ball and just bounced it a little bit and said, some of us are this way. Some of us have the capacity to rebound, the ability to bounce back. Things can happen to us. We can lose things and we can go through hardship and difficulty and pain and suffering and trials but we, we bounce back. And I brought up an egg, a hard-boiled egg, so George, the custodian at Woodland Hills, wouldn't be mad at me, but I dropped that, that egg and said, some of us are this way. You see, it's easy for us to think, well, the difference between somebody that's resilient and someone's not is just the level of circumstances, the level of difficulty that they're going through. But you know, that's false. That's false. You don't have to be a person of faith, a religious person to agree with what I'm saying now. I mean, there's just plenty of people. Have you noticed in life? I mean, if you're down and things are negative and dark in your world, man, look. Because you know what? You know what I'm finding? There are survivors in this world. There are people that have been through some really low lows. But they have a story to tell. They've told me, and they can tell you if you ask about the Father of mercy, the God of all comfort, like Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And the language of resiliency is so beautifully expressed as we've been looking at 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about, uh, you know, we are, we're getting it from every side. Of, we're afflicted from every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We've been struck down, but we're not destroyed. Why? The outward man is, is perishing. He's in a state of decay. He's wasting away, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. And all these problems, all these problems I'm considering just momentary light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that God has for us. The resilient life we're inviting you into last Sunday, our very own Nick Crawford preached a solid sermon from a, from a great young man. A couple of you this week said, hey, RG, when you're out of town or someone else preaches, introduce them. I don't know who some of these folks are. Well, we introduced Nick as he joined our staff to lead community groups in August. I stood up here with his family and introduced them to you guys. And Nick is, uh, is a lawyer and has become a pastor. How about that? Isn't that a great transition? You know God's going to honor that from darkness into light. Nick is an NCAA baseball record holder, been hit by more pitches than anybody in the history of baseball. If you bump into his coach, Jimmy Page, who's coached at Millsaps for a long, long time, some of you know Jimmy. Jimmy will tell you his favorite player of all time at Millsaps is Nick Crawford. Uh, Nick shared last week from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 about grace as we suffer and how it relates to generosity. We think generosity is what? I'm going to wait until I give financial. I'm going to wait until I have some excess, and then I'll give it to God. Mm-mm. God says, give me the first fruits. Be a priority giver. Be a percentage giver. Let's live generously. And it's great to know that in the midst of extreme suffering, persecution, economic suffering, that the early church was a model of generosity. They lived self-sacrificially. And Nick did such a splendid job if you were here. Here's Nick's son. After church last Sunday, he was with Kristen, his wife. I want to show you a quick clip sure. of their little boy, Coy. Now that's a... What is it? 
You see, if we can show that again, there's an astronaut on Coy's shirt, and they're teaching him to say astronaut. Can we play that one more time? Sure. What is it? How cute is that, huh? Later after church, I'm going to ask him to say rivalry week. <laughs> rivalry week. Rivalry week. Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. I want us to look at this passage. Just one simple passage. Now, 2 Corinthians 11 is beautiful. It gives Paul's resume. He gives a litany, a catalog, a list of all the stuff, most of the stuff that he had been through. And he said on top of it, the, on top of all this is my concern, my care for all the churches. He had a shepherd's heart. He had a pastor's heart. He, he took seriously the idea that you're the overseer of people's souls. What a serious charge to take. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, he says this, how... Crucial this would be if we're going to live a resilient life. We're going to be able to bounce back. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. Circle the word thoughts, your thoughts. He's afraid that your thoughts, well, what? Just as a serpent deceived Eve through cunning, that your thoughts would be led astray. Every day, each and every day, is a succession of moments. An an opportunity, as, as Paul would say to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 5, the days are evil. Make the most of every opportunity. Each and every day, you and I have 86,400 seconds. We're conscious, we're we have subconscious and conscious during each and every one of those seconds. We, we think thoughts. We talk to ourselves. How many of you believe that you talk to yourself? You do. The research lends credence to this idea. A lot of preachers are preaching this now as more conclusive evidence comes in. But we all talk to ourselves. And most of our thoughts, most of our inner talking is very negative. Church, I would put it this way. If you talk to your friends the way you talk to yourself, you wouldn't have any friends. Each and every day, you and I, we have thoughts. But what kind of thoughts are we going to have? Paul says that you got to be careful your thoughts so that you're not led astray. I love the story the scripture gives us of a man named Elijah. Elijah had a high and then Elijah had a low. How many of that, that's happened to you? You had, a, you had a big high. It was lofty. And then right on the hills of that high was a low. And Elijah's high was when he stood on a mountaintop and was used by God to defeat the prophets of Baal. And this was a great high for him. His low was when he had to face the opposition of Jezebel. And when he faced the opposition, it took him into the pit, into the pit of despair. Would he be resilient? Here's some things recorded for us in 1 Kings 19 that Elijah said. I am not better than my ancestors. He felt Worthless. I have, I've had enough. He felt hopeless. I'm the only one left. He felt isolated. Take my life. Seemingly, he was unable to cope. Your thoughts can lead you astray. Our thoughts lead us. Our thoughts can deceive us, Paul is saying. There's no way to live a resilient life if we don't get a handle of this idea. Worthless, 
hopeless, isolated, unable to cope. Look at our world today as events unfold. We're blaming things, and what's the natural thing to do? Natural thing to do is talk about externals, about legislation, education, morality, what we can see and know and what we can try to control. Not making a political statement here. But I'm concerned more and more about our mental health as a nation. We're a church that increasingly pray for us, be a part of this, jump in and help us. But increasingly, we want to be a church that ministers in the city and thus engages with homeless people. But do you know that homelessness is largely a mental health problem? And the violence that's so scary today in many situations is in large part a result of mental health. People in despair. Worthless, hopeless, isolated, unable to cope. If you, if you have an open Bible, I don't know, I didn't really invite you to, but if you have an open Bible in front of you, um, you can look back and you might not even have to turn the page, but Paul, we looked at this passage, 2 Corinthians eleven three. but Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 tells us, he gives us a command, take every thought captive. You ever heard that verse? Take every, when you're having a meltdown, somebody cheered you up and they said, man, you need, bro, you need to take every thought captive. Hey, sister. This thing's spiraling in your head. You need to take every thought captive. Take it captive what? Take it captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.4. It reminds me of what the psalmist said in one of my favorite passages, Psalm 16. He says, I have continually set the Lord before me. Both of those from Psalm 16 and Paul here in 2 Corinthians 10.4, set the Lord before me take captive every thought, both are active verbs implying that you and I, we can help determine where our thoughts go. This passage offers us a realistic look into the world of spiritual warfare. And Paul tells us that there's an enemy and that enemy will plant lard in our minds when we're not looking. He'll put in depression in our breakfast cereal in the morning. He'll sprinkle in some temptation into our minds at lunch. He'll slip in a worry sandwich right before we go to bed. And that's what the enemy does. That's what can happen to us through his cunning and through our openness. How many of you are going to travel over the holidays? You're going you're gonna to go see mom and them. You're going to go out of town, whether it's a trip, vacation, something. You're going to travel, right? That means you're probably going to leave your home alone. You're going to leave your home. Your home's going to be alone. I don't know if Kevin's going to be there, but you're going to leave your home, and it's going to be alone, right? But how many of you would ever think about leaving doors and windows unlocked? But that's what you do. That's what we do so often with our minds. We're not careful about what comes in. You know, we, we care a lot about what we fuel, what kind of premium fuel we put into premium things like high-performance cars and commercial aircraft and thoroughbred horses. We care. We care about what goes in. And so when Paul says, I'm afraid that your thoughts will be led astray, just as the enemy deceived Eve, that your thoughts, your mind, 
that you might not take every thought captive. And it's not automatic, is it? There is a, a default, a natural default to the negative. We can miss what it really means to trust God. And we open up our lives to the enemy. And just as you wouldn't travel, I mean, when we go out of town, it's like, you know, lights are on. We got some sensor lights and we lock and close things. We pretend we're, we're at home and we have certain things set up in place so as to scare away any would-be intruder. And we live in Fondren. And we've never been victimized by crime yet. Praise God. <laughs> I told my wife that the, when we moved here into town that the Lord was going to be a shield about us. So keep going, God. But you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't leave doors and windows unlocked. But that's what we do so often with our minds. And we let the enemy, listen to the language of responsibility, we let the enemy plant things in our heads when we're not looking. The disciples, the same disciples who cowered in fear when the Savior was being crucified were the same disciples who eventually would later on sacrifice their lives. What changed? It wasn't their bodies. It was their minds. Do you know, again, putting, putting the Bible aside, putting religious claims aside, uh, research is now showing that these three things, prayer, meditation, and confession, can rewire your brain. Can I say that again? Research is showing from the world of neurology that the neuroplasticity of your mind, that prayer and meditation and confession can rewire your brain. Today, maybe your life lacks resiliency. Maybe you're hitting new lows because you think oh, it's a passive, sort of timid view toward your thought life, or these things are just coming my way and I, don't, I can't do anything about them. Your thoughts, I'm afraid that your thoughts will be led astray. From the original Greek language of this letter, 2 Corinthians, the idea of led astray is sort of that idea of drifting or erosion. I want to give you a simple definition of erosion. Erosion is a slow, silent process based on secret choices. No married couple suddenly gets a divorce. No home suddenly fractures. No church suddenly splits. No one becomes a cynic overnight. And you and I, we think life is big and bold and boisterous. Those are the things that we're looking for. But life is soft. It's silent. Slow. It's subtle. And you and I can easily, we can easily be led astray. We're not careful. Hebrews chapter 2, in fact, gives us, it says, pay attention, be very careful. The King James says, take earnest heed unless you drift. Unless you drift. Not too long ago, I had preached about 20 sermons in a row. A couple of Sundays I was gone from here, but I was uh, somewhere else doing a favor for a friend. 20 sermons in a row. Uh, an average sermon is about 15 to 20 hours of preparation. You do the math. 
in the, in the middle of all of this, there was some uh, leadership things and just a lot going on and all the other stuff that comes with being a pastor. And I remember being at a stage where I was emotionally exhausted, physically drained, spiritually depleted. I looked up from sermon notes and I realized that I had drifted. That if I wasn't careful, I was in the process of losing my first love. Revelation's kind of a freaky book with all the apocalyptic stuff and all the symbolism, all the metaphors. But it says in Revelations 2, it talks about these churches. And it says to one church, I have this thing against you that you've, you haven't remembered your first love. We love novelty. We grow bored with familiarity. And in my life, through routine, through habit, through practice, through good things, through serving others, through living out my calling, I looked up and realized that I had drifted, that I was being led astray. It can happen. It can happen to us. It can happen to you. Many, many years ago, it was the early days of our marriage, a noxious odor entered our home to the point where we just had to evacuate. And I thought it was a, a gas leak. I called the gas company and the fire department. And we later learned, it turns out, that there was a skunk. A skunk that had gotten underneath, uh, I guess, the crawl area of our house. Wasn't the best news. You ever gotten close to a skunk? It's true. All the stuff you hear and read about, I mean, it's true. It's brutal. I made some phone calls and quickly discovered that no exterminator was going to come look for skunks. So we thought we would just live with it. I figured it would go away. It lingered. But you know, we grew used to it. And we wouldn't think anything of it during these weeks until a, a guest at our home would go, Woo! What is that smell? Jim Carrey came over one time and said, Woo! Do not go into there. No. What is that noxious odor? You see, we... We tried to deal with it, we thought about it, and when it, when it came to dealing with it, it just became inconvenient, it became costly, and we thought, eh, let's just look past it. Eventually, it will go away. How many of you use that? That's the way you tackle your problems. Eventually, it'll go away. And sometimes you need someone around you, many people around you to go, whew, stinks, man, this stinks. What is it, is it you? Eventually, I called. I'm like, I got to get somebody. Like, not your just run-of-the-mill exterminator. I got to get the skunk whisperer to our house. And the skunk whisperer came and discovered there was a dead one and a live one who was alive and active and rummaging. And the only way, I'll tell you, the only way to get rid of a skunk smell is to get rid of the skunk. And you and I allow thinking in our lives that's noxious. And we need to take care of it. Your inner life is, there's an aroma to it. And when it's negative, it gives off stuff. And when things are going on there that you're not dealing with in the interior of your life, your mood dips, you feel low. 
God seems distant. Prayer seems pointless. Sin looks tempting. Life looks bleak. And God wants to do something there. This morning, are you letting your thoughts lead you astray? Are you drifting somewhere that you never intended to be? Stinks, doesn't it? I pray you'll have the courage to deal with it, to learn to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, to learn to set the Lord continually before you. Harder to do in this age than ever. Harder to do in 2015, soon to be 16, than ever before. And I predict it's not going to get any easier. The only way to get rid of a skunk smell is to remove the skunk. The scripture uses that word deceived as Paul uses here in 2 Corinthians eleven three. 3. It uses it in several ways. I studied this week and studied the word deception. Where is it used? What does scripture talk about? How are we deceived? Scripture tells us that we can deceive ourselves. If you're a note taker, I'm gonna give you three. We can deceive ourselves. Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Anybody know what the rest of that says? For we reap what we sow. It's going to be tough in your life. Can I tell you this morning as your pastor, it's going to be tough in your life if you think you're the exception to that. If you think you can cut corners, cook the books and fudge numbers, let things, character things in your life just slowly erode and make poor choice after poor choice and hide things. You reap what you sow. There are no exceptions to that. And to the man or to the woman who thinks that they're an exception to that, you're mocking God. Eventually things play out. Do not deceive yourself. God is not mocked. But look at what 1 John 1.8 says. Apparently, it's common to deceive ourselves. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Can I say, nobody, nobody walks around, nobody I know and says, I don't sin, I don't have sin. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Now, some people strut around. Some people are cocky. Some people judge others. Some people think they're better. Some people spend more time on your sin or mine. But I've never met anybody that's like, I don't sin. Some cult leaders who took their lives and lives of other people, David Koresh, Jim Jones, some people like that maybe, but no, no sane person says, I have no sin. But John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, is saying that these are specific things. If in this area you say, I have no sin, we what? We, we deceive ourselves and the truth of God. The truth is not in us. Your eyes are the only eyes, the only pair of eyes that you cannot gaze into. To, to see yourself, you need, I need, we need cameras, we need mirrors, we need others. You know yourself better than other people know you, right? You have this life, this inner life of thoughts and feelings and judgments and aspirations, fears, all that, right? So that's why somebody who loves you, friend or family, will say, hey, how are you doing? What's, what's going on? I had a friend do this to, in my life just a few weeks ago. It meant the world. 
Because I, I knew he wasn't curious. I knew he cared. And he said, how are you doing? And the assumption there, the preponderance of the idea was, hey, I don't really know what, I know some things about Robert and some things that are going on in his life, but how's, how are you doing? And the idea there is I know, I know things about me better and more than he knows things about me. So in one sense, you know you better than other people, but listen, kind of tricky here, but on another sense, you know yourself worse than some other people know you. We all have a tendency to look the other way. We all rationalize and justify and minimize and deny and embellish and forget. Man, that's, an, that's kind of indicting, isn't it? Can I say it again? We all have the tendency to rationalize and justify and minimize and deny and look the other way and forget and embellish. And that means we need other eyes so that we don't deceive ourselves. Say this after me. There is a me I do not see. Again, there is a me I do not see. Let's say it together. There is a me I do not see. We can deceive ourselves. We can be deceived, secondly, by temptation. James chapter 1, a, a chapter that talks about, uh, he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, that's a dumb statement from somebody so close to Jesus. Count it joy when you fall into various trials. But he says that these trials, they can lead, they can produce endurance in your life. And when you endure something, then God will mature you. That's the language of resilience. James chapter one, do we have that passage, I believe? James chapter one, and it talks about when, here we go, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by their good life. I think we have the wrong passage. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase what it says, and if we can get it up there, that'll be fine. But James chapter 1, verse 13 to 17 says that when, when a man is tempted, when someone is tempted, let not that person say, I'm being tempted by God because God doesn't tempt anyone. But, uh, but someone is tempted when what? When they're enticed with lust. Let, here we go. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, here's the, here's the part, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here we go. Do not be, what? Deceived. My beloved brothers. I love that language, by the way. Hard truth, but a lot of love. Man, I pray that our, our leaders, I pray that I'm that way. I pray that our leaders that way. I pray that your homes are that way. If you lead, if you're a leader, hard truth, but wrapped in love. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, the only time God has called this in the Bible, this exact phrase, the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is not moody. No variation, no changing. You're moody, aren't you? You're sitting next to someone who's really moody, right? But God is not. He's the same. And this passage tells us a couple of things about how temptation 
deceives us. First of all, we are more prone to be deceived when we are being enticed and lured into something that doesn't bring glory to God and that is not good for your soul. And can I tell you that both things are the same? There's a great preacher named John Piper who's been faithful to the Lord and to Scripture for decades. And John Piper can preach on this as good as anybody, but what brings glory to God is also good for your soul. How cool is that? And when you're being drawn away and enticed, sin just looks so good. But he says there that the way to not be deceived when you're going through something hard and you're being tempted is to realize the sovereign goodness of God. What we want when we get through into something hard, we've said it for several weeks here in the Resilient Life, when we're going through something hard, what do we do? We don't ask for comfort for us. We ask for removal. God, remove this from me. Get it out of my life. Get me out of this situation. And I don't know if God's going to do that, whatever predicament you're going through. Now, number one, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not God. I'm not close to God. I'm a man like you. I'm just a mere mortal. I, I, I don't have any clairvoyancy or telepathic powers. I just don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in the predicament, the problem that you're facing now. And I'd love to be able to, to just pray it out of you and pray you out of that situation. But I do know what I'm learning in my own life when something's hard, when it's difficult, that it really helps me to not be deceived by looking at the sovereign goodness of God. You have so much to be thankful for. And don't let the problem or predicament rob you of what is so good and so blessed in your life. And when you're being tempted, man, it's gonna, you're gonna be, it's gonna be so easy to be deceived because it's hard. But God says there is a purpose for this pain. And while you're going through it, I'm going to teach you endurance, and it's going to have its perfect work, and you're going to be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But in the middle of that process, the only way to not be deceived by temptation is to look at the sovereign goodness of God. It is, as we would say in America, it is an invitation to count your blessings. What's good in your life today? Man, shout it out and call it out. You're going to need it. You're going to need those things to get you through. We deceive ourselves. We're deceived by temptation and we're deceived by sin. Hebrews 3.13 tells us, let us, let us in the body of Christ, let us encourage one another daily so that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I'm learning that we all stumble in many ways. I do and you do. We all do. And the question is not, do I sin? But the question is, how do I deal with my sin? How do I see my sin? The idea of confession is that I agree with God about my sin. I see how it separates. I see how it alienates. I see how it grieves him. Scripture says, don't quench the spirit of God. Don't grieve the spirit of God. How do I do that in my life? There's a me I do not see, and therefore I need some of you. As I journal, as I write, and as I think about my life and sin, as I turned this year, I had a big birthday, and I turned 49. I'm not old. I'm just getting started. I'm young and handsome and studly, 
with decades left, right? Everybody shake your head just to make me feel better. This is therapy. Lie to me. But seriously, I am beginning to think about my life and its legacy. And how will I finish? What fruit will my life bear? How will I love and lead my family? How will I remain faithful to the commitments that God has given me? How can I be a pastor and leader that you can be proud of? So as I journal, I'm thinking a lot more about sin these days. And there's two things with sin so that we're not deceived that we have to be careful of. The scripture tells us we need to pay attention. And scripture tells us we need to put off. Do you know that there are warning signs? There are physical warning signs. I did a little study this week. Chest pains could indicate heart problems. Shortened eyebrows could indicate a thyroid hypertivity. Um, yellow dots on your eyelids could indicate high cholesterol. You know these things? I'm looking at some doctors and nurses in here. How about this? A diagonal crease in your earlobe could indicate it, there could be a link to a heart attack. Now, everybody just wants to get up and go look in the mirror, right? All these things from the medical community are true. There are warning signs. We just got to know them. We just got to know to look. We just, we just have to pay attention. We have to draw the correlation. We have to understand the relationship. But there are some things from the outside that show us what's going on in the inside. And so it is true in the spiritual life. When I shared with you my testimony a few minutes ago, when I looked up from incredible season of busyness when I was doing too much and I looked up and I drifted, there were warning signs prior to that moment. Pay attention. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Know my anxious thoughts. Pay attention. Secondly, we put off. You know, the Bible uses one interesting metaphor for sin. It uses the image of clothing. Now, some of you do sin with your clothing, but the Bible says that we can put off and we can put on. There are things we put off and there are things that we are to put on. I share it like this. There's an acronym that I call RAGS, R-A-G-S. In essence, I've been a little bit creative here. I've kind of systemized it, but these are things that the scripture tells us, namely from Paul, that we ought to put off. Resentment, anxiety, greed, and lastly, let's just throw this one in here because it meant a lot to Jesus, superiority. Resentment is this idea of mismanaged anger or bitterness. Anxiety is an inability or refusal to trust God. It's a sin of passivity or timidity. Greed is not just a money thing. It's mismanaged desires of all kinds. And superiority, the one that Jesus was so concerned about among religious people, self-righteousness and contempt for others. And what I do in my life is I think about the putting off of these sins. Now I ask myself regularly just a series of questions and it is always painful, always convicting. Over half the time it leads to a conversation, a phone call that I need to make, which when it's made, when it's completed, brings glory to God, and is good for my soul. Sin deceives me. There is a me that I do not see. And it's important to sit down. Because you know what? The research is in. Prayer, meditation, 
and confession can rewire your brain. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Know my anxious thoughts. And then have the courage to be willing to put off what we need to put off. Let's close. Let's round toward home plate by seeing what Paul really, really says. He says what? What's the end result? I'm afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve with his cunning, that your thoughts would be led astray. What? From what? What did the pastor say? From the simplicity and purity of Christ. Those words are transliterated, the simplicity, the singularity, the sincerity. I think the ESV says the sincerity. We make things too complex. We have too much stuff and too many choices. I've got a friend out west. He's a godly man. He leads a bunch of people. He teaches in seminary and is associate pastor of a church. He wears the same thing every day. I'm like, how boring, how drab, right? That's not me. I kind of like fashion. I buy more shoes than my wife, okay? It's a confession. But he just likes things simple. He didn't want to waste any time deciding what he's going to wear. So wears the same thing every day. He didn't care. He has good hygiene. He's a handsome man. He's well-respected. He earns a good living. He's gainfully employed. He just doesn't want to decide about what he has to wear. Researchers at Stanford showed in a, in a Whole Foods market, when customers would walk in on one side, they were offered um, an opportunity to taste and purchase one of 38 jams or jellies. 38. And on this side of the store, there were six jellies or jams to taste or purchase. Which side of the store had far more purchases? The one with 38 or the one with six? It was over and beyond the one with six. We're debilitated by our choices, our stuff, the complexity of life. You can Google U.S. Department regulations on the sale of cabbage and you'll get 29,000 pages. That's just a lot of information. And the businesses and the churches and the organizations that are doing it well are what they're simplifying. My friend Scott McLeod a couple years ago said, read this book called Simplify. It's by Steve Jobs. Excellent. Helpful. To simplify in order for us to be more sincere, for us to be more singular, we have to simplify. Uh, several years ago on a vacation, I was with some friends and we were in a desert community. And as we were driving, we realized we're lost and time was of essence. And we had no clue. And we didn't GPS or anything. We were just trying to figure out. So we stopped and we asked. Some men have done that in the history of the world. And we did that day. And we said, how do you get to such and such? And this guy, he, he had a tough accent. And he said, you know, you need to go over here. There's a fell over sign. And past that fell, you need to turn here. And I'm like, man, could you write this down? And he just began to write it down. And I, we walked away with a couple of pages of scribble, scrabble, and this and that. And as we were walking to the car, an older gentleman said, you know, I'm kind of going close to there. Why don't you follow me? Now, I'm an extrovert. I love people. I'd much rather talk to somebody and trust somebody than look down at paper, right? And this man didn't lead us astray. He led us right where we needed to go. And I thought, what a metaphor for the spiritual life. What an what a analogy to following Jesus. We can, we can look at all the complexities of it all 
and try to figure some things out that are far beyond us, or we could follow a person. We could follow a person. Some of our young men and women in the room today are seminarians. I'm glad they are. Seminary is great. But seminaries are full of complexity and legalese and just systematic types of stuff that becomes, uh, it doesn't orient a person's heart. It might inform their mind, but it doesn't naturally orient their heart to following a person. I'm afraid that your thoughts will be led astray from what? From the simplicity, the sincerity, the singularity and purity of following Jesus. This word purity is not one that we maybe embrace in our day. Several years ago, I, I remember watching some football and how essential it was to have some snacks, right? Every man knows that, especially during bowl season, rivalry week. It's important to have some, some good snacks and what better snack than easy cheese? You put this on some Ritz crackers and it's a eating utopia. Cheese in an aerosol can. Got to be pure, right? Pure deliciousness. I'm going to ask Bob and Martha Pennebaker to just put their index fingers in their ears. They, they're organic, whole people. They shop at Rainbow. They've been members there, lifelong members there. But Easy Cheese has is, is, is been an essential part of my diet. Zzz, rich crackers. I mean, and several years ago, I looked down at the ingredients because I began to wonder, is this like real cheese? <laughs> it is America. America says it's American cheese. But what's in here? 17 different ingredients, half of which I can't pronounce. Most end with the word phosphate. I don't know if that's good. But is it, is it pure? And we live in an age that's processed, synthesized, injected, artificial, and we're left wondering, even with our bottled water, is it pure? Jesus taught in the greatest sermon ever, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are what the pure in spirit, for they will see God. He really cares that you and I were guarded and were careful about what we led in our lives. That we don't give ourselves to multiplicity, too many things, or duplicity, hypocrisy, and false things, being two different people, but that we would just be simply, purely, Devoted to him. When religious people who complicated matters, who added to the Ten Commandments of the Law of Moses and brought 613 commandments and growing around them, somebody asked him about the kingdom and they said, you'll not enter the kingdom of God, you scribes and you Pharisees, unless you become, unless anyone becomes what? Like a scribe and Pharisee? Like a very religious person? Like someone who adds more stuff? Unless you become like a child. And every child I know, it's glorious to think about at Christmas time, isn't it? But every child I know realizes that they're not in charge. And the purity of the kingdom is I'm going to follow a person. Not a bunch of rules and regulations. I'm following a person because they know where they're going. That person cares for me. And the person deeply loves me like nobody else. And the me I cannot see, that, that person loves deeply and forgives all. And calls me to deeper relationship. Every kid I know 
little kid, doesn't pine about the past, doesn't fret about the future, doesn't worry about the world's well-being. They don't check the NASDAQ composite index or the S&P. They don't check any of that. They don't carry a daytime or have a digital assistant. They know someone else is in charge and someone else is really calling the shots. They just love. They just trust. They just follow. If you and I are going to be resilient, that's what we need. Let's pray.